0: Okay, zombies. I told you, you get Clark Kent. Zombies. Zombies are, it seems like zombies are everywhere in the past 10 or 15 years, right? TV shows, movies, they're all over the place. They're horrible creatures, right? We all hate zombies. They're creepy, they're spooky, they're they're not very pleasant. Um, So I used to think... um, well, first, what makes them worse is that we all know where they came from, right? In all the zombie movies, all the zombie shows, they were people before they got turned to zombies, which is it's even worse because now you've you've marred this creature and it's this undead thing that also can make other humans undead, right? It's 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 the worst. Nan hates zombie movies. Uh, I don't, I don't mind them. They're kind of interesting. But um, it's, I used to think of humanity, and I've said this before, as sort of a morgue, where God looks out on the morgue of humanity, and, and for his own good purposes, for nothing in ourselves, because we're all just a bunch of dead bodies, he places his love upon us personally, individually, going through the morgue of humanity, sealing us. In election and, and making actually uh, accomplishing it through the cross of Jesus Christ, and then applying it to us in the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit in time, raising us from the dead, regenerating our hearts, and we raise from the dead literally, spiritually, and, uh, and, and we have new life. But you know what? I think that there's a better analogy. And the better analogy would be we as humans are one massive army of zombies. Because that's really what we are. We are dead, true, but we're not just dead laying there on a stone-cold slab of marble. We are are dead and we've taken up whatever arms that we have, whatever gifts and talents that we have, and we have pursued uh, using them against God, right? A lot of times people say, well, there's, there's some good. You know, people do some good in the world, right? And from a human perspective, that's true. Um, but look at any evil regime, human regime throughout history. And there were people who were very competent at running that regime. Maybe they were good at torturing people. Maybe they were good at extracting money from people. Maybe they were good at making the economy hum along. Maybe they were good at slaughtering opponents on the battlefield. Uh, But are these really good things? No. So from a human perspective, we can see that goodness standard has to have some higher perspective. You have to look at that from a higher plane. And from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of God the Father, we, humanity, is a massive army of zombies and nothing more uh, we have turned against him and and not only so but like in most zombie movies it's uh you know the worst thing is when the hero falls right the hero becomes a zombie at the at the end or whatever that's terrible uh, but this it's not like that the, the first zombie was thousands of years ago Eve, when they fell, they turned into zombies until the Holy Spirit regenerated them. By the way, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit regenerated people the same way that he's doing it right now, right? So there, was, there, was, there had to be a regeneration in that case. Um, but that's thousands of years ago. We have thousands, hundreds or thousands of generations of zombies where our only desire is against God, as Paul says. No one does good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Period. Uh, so that's our that's our uh, position. That's our status right now. And and I'm, I'm glad we had a Christmas kind of a an Advent sort of song. Um, that's what the Christmas story is about. The Christmas story is is really about a God so compelled by his love for the people that he has chosen from all eternity that he would though infinite in all of his perfections his holiness his knowledge his his glory his majesty his power his wisdom etc though infinite he would be so compelled to take on himself the very nature of of the zombie army that has turned their back and and actually is waging war against him. He didn't do that for the angels. The angels fell and that was it. But for us, the second person of the Trinity took upon himself our nature. This, before it was marred, it was even uh, limited, weak, frail even before we became zombies. It was limited, weak, frail compared to the infinite nature of the Godhead. And yet that he would do that in the depth of his love, that's the Christmas story really. And so uh, what we have here is, I'll read these, these first, these, just these three verses that we'll look at today. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It kind of reminds me of the um, of the words Becky saying um, he made his enemies his friends it, in uh, so, uh, so true. He made every single one of us who were his enemy into his friends. So I'll go through our passage today, and, and I'm going to try to bring out five points uh, for us to, to think about. First, Christ partook of human nature. And we kind of already discussed that a little bit. But, it, but in his partaking, first see who he did it for. He did it for... As verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So he did it for the children. That, that connects to the verse right before. Behold, I and the children God has given me. That's, those words are put into the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth here. Those are the same people in verse 11 who are sanctified by the sanctifier, Jesus Christ. Uh, they are his brothers Again, in verse 11. In verse 10, they are the many sons that God brings to glory. Those also are all the limiting, the delimiters, if you will, of verse 10, when the author says, Because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's not everyone indiscriminately. It's for everyone of you to whom the author is writing. Um, because he he clarifies that in his definitions later. The, the brothers, the sons, the children whom are attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are later called the, the heirs of the promise in chapter six. And because the children share, or better yet, the children um, have an ongoing share in. <clears throat> the tense of the verb there is is different. There's, there are two different verbs here. The children share and he partook. And those are, they are not only different verbs, but there are different tenses. And the tenses are important because we all share um, in a common human nature. We have since our beginning in Adam and Eve, and we continue to. So it's, it's what's called in the Greek a perfect tense. It's something that happened In the past, but it has continuing effect. Uh, When the author talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, He himself likewise partook of the same. That was a distinct point in time where the Son of God, who does not have a human nature, the Son of God who has the nature of the Godhead, took upon himself... The h- human nature, and thus, in one single person, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have two natures, and that's clearly taught here through the verbs and through their tenses. Though it doesn't necessarily come out as clearly as we might like in the English. That's so often the case. And he had to take par- partake of this because both the priest and the sacrifice. In this, the author of the Hebrews will of uh, the letter of the Hebrews will focus on for a lot of the book we won't focus on it right now just to mention it, except to mention it the priest and the sacrifice both have to have our nature the priest has to be taken from among men and the sacrifice has to be of uh, human nature it is insufficient for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin hebrews chapter 10. it is impossible And so he is he is our nature and except for sin, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Um, In in all ways, he is the same as us, except without sin. His nature is the same as ours. So he who created the world, this is what the author said in chapter one. In chapter one, he was at pains to, to proclaim the divinity. Of Jesus Christ the one who created the world the one who is the very radiance of the glory of the Godhead the one who upholds the entire universe by the word of his power this can be no other than God and he is also the one then who shares who partook in our nature So he shares in our humanity in order that we might be sharers. Um, Same word, by the way, Uh, if you'll look in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. (laughs) It's just a trick of English here. But uh, that word share is actually the word partake (laughs) in our verse 14. Um, Not the word share, which is a different word. That's in verse 14. I, I really wish the English translators would, you know, just stick to the same words. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not as good sort of sounding English. Um, however, it is in fact this, he partook and we then share in a heavenly calling. Those are the same words. So he shared in our nature so that we might share in his heavenly nature, his heavenly calling. So secondly, so he partook. Secondly, Christ paralyzed the devil. Now what it says in, in the ESV, and there, there's different versions here, um, but it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Again, a, a little unfortunate choice of words, I think, by the, by the translators. That word usually means um, rendered powerless taking away the power of something. Um, there are a myriad of other examples in the New Testament of that word um, where most almost all the time it does not mean destroyed. Uh, but for for maybe maybe for um, English sounding reasons, uh, they chose the word destroyed. It's uh, more accurate to say renders powerless, which I take to be the same as paralyze and not destroy. For, because Um, While the devil's destruction is surely hinted at here, his future destruction, it's not really what's in focus. What's in focus is his power over those who live in lifelong fear of death, this slavery, right? That's in in the next verse, deliver all those who through death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's this power that the devil has over death that's in view. That's the power that Jesus Christ takes away. He doesn't destroy the devil, right? Yeah, I mean, the devil, otherwise there would be no Ephesians 6 spiritual warfare. There would be no need for, first for Peter to tell us that the, uh, the devil, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour, um, and, and other such things. Uh, the, God, the God of this world, in fact, is the devil. And it is the God of this world who has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so the devil is not destroyed nor rendered completely powerless. He's a very powerful adversary. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the warnings that we do. But Jesus Christ has taken away his power to uh, subject believers to the fear of the grave. Because we don't have to fear the grave anymore, Jesus Christ paid that penalty. So uh, let me let me just um, digress a little bit about the, how his power is broken. Um, where does this power over death consist? Well, in in the first place, the devil was the originator, right? So it was the devil who who originated the temptation in the garden, and who caused the fall of man. Now, it was man's free will, at the time free, and here ever after not free. Uh, it was man's will that caused him to fall. It wasn't the devil that caused him to fall, but the devil was the, the immediate cause, if you will. It's, he was the instrument for man's fall into death. And so, in that the devil could be said to have the power of death because he was the instrument causing death to mankind. Uh, again, in, in Genesis three, we have the the in, in Genesis three fifteen, uh, he will bruise your heel, and you will crush the serpent's head. Um, this is spoken of Jesus Christ, and uh, and so in this way, though. The bruising of the heel was the bringing of death into the world, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The crushing of the serpent's head makes death not a penalty anymore for the, for the believer, but it's a gateway to home. Right? It's no, it's, there is no longer a penal aspect to it for the believer, um, but rather a gateway to home. He's also instrumental in keeping him, the devil, in keeping men in the dark, which he did for so long uh, under the old, old Covenant, right? Because uh, God's special revelation was limited at the time to Israel, to a very small, select ethnic group of humanity. Um, there, were, there were a lot of other ethnic groups back then, but God's special revelation was limited to Israel. And in that way, the devil could be said to keep the rest of the world in darkness. It was, it was a kingdom of darkness, in fact, is what it's called. Uh, but now, with the entrance of the gospel, with the Lord Jesus Christ having taken partook of our human nature and sacrificed that up for the penalty of our sin, that gospel, that good news has gone everywhere and is still going everywhere, uh, even now in India, I hope. Uh, Jason is preaching that. Well, I don't know what the time change is. Soon. Uh, uh, but, but even now, uh, that, that gospel is spreading to all corners of the globe. Unbound by a per- particular ethnic distinction. And so in that way, the power of death, his power of death, his power in this kingdom of darkness, has also been broken, rendered powerless. Not destroyed, rendered powerless. But then, finally, and, and probably primarily, where, where does the power of uh, his power over death reside? It resides in our fear. Where does that reside? Well, our fear resides in that we have sin, right? And Paul says in one Corinthians fifteen fifty six that the sting of death is sin. With no sin, there is no sting. Right? Because sin is, sin leads to a penalty. And we all know it. Um, in, uh, boy, for, for in, in Romans chapter 1, we know there's a penalty. Um, and though we know God's righteous decree, we keep on doing the same sins anyway and give hearty approval to those who do them. Uh, in chapter 2 of Romans, our, our sins, our conscience now bearing witness, now accusing us before, before God. Why? Because the law of God is written on our hearts. And we know, so we know that we have sin. We know that there's a penalty for sin. We know that comes after death. That's the sting. And when Jesus Christ takes that sting away by paying the penalty, there's no longer any power, the, the devil has no power in that case over death. So that renders him powerless, as the, as the verb literally means in the Greek, to render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, on account of this fear of the grave, this fear of death. And so that's the primary reason, I think, uh, why the, um, the author here says, and the author is the Holy Spirit, right? Why though we don't know actually who wrote Hebrews it's one of those rare books of the Bible where it's not doesn't have a signature or anything, uh, but the author, whoever he was, um, moved precisely by the Holy Spirit, made that very argument. Thirdly, Christ plundered us from the devil. Uh, this is um, this can be seen in verse 15, where he says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Deliver. That word deliver really has the sense, uh, it's, not a ne- it's not necessarily the, the usual word. In fact, it's used extremely rarely in the New Testament, that particular Greek word he uses here. It's not the usual word for deliver or rescue. It, it has the sense of carry away. And in the, the only one other instance in the New Testament in which it's used in a relevant way, it's, it's used in one other instance in an irrelevant way, but in, in the one relevant case, it's used of the napkins and aprons and, and handkerchiefs that touched Paul that were then carried away to the sick that God might heal them through it. So it is literally a carrying away. Uh, this is really the picture that... Um, that God is conveying to us here. It's, and it's captured very well. I'll, I'll read Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, When a strong man, that is the devil, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, that is Jesus, then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor, power of death, in which he trusted and divides, frees, his spoil, us, the children. And so this this, uh, quotation from Jesus, which is really very much to the effect, the the Jews at the time were complaining that, oh, you, you must be casting out the devil by the hand of the devil. And Jesus said, no, one more powerful than the devil has come among you. So let me put this very plainly to you. Uh, Which he does then. So the sense for us is that he is carrying us away as treasure, his own treasured possession, from the devil. Fourthly, Christ also pacifies us. So he he takes away the fear of death that holds humanity in universal dread. As I said, we know God's righteous decree that those who practice sin deserve death, Romans 1.32. We know that our consciences bear witness against us since the law is written on our hearts, Romans 2.15. So we have, as Hebrews later puts it in chapter 10, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and a fire that will consume the adversaries. So that's what we have an apprehension of. Um, it's interesting, when I Googled uh, fear of death or quotes for fear of death, things like that, uh, all I get are uh, illegitimate attempts at trying to pacify people's fear of death. Don't worry, it's, it's, it's merely another phase of, of existence you're going to, et cetera, et cetera. You scroll down and down and down on Google, and it takes a while to actually get to some substantial things um, that are meaningful in a true spiritual sense. Uh, people know, and, and the fact that Google is loaded, front loaded with all of this, um, all of these, I'll just call them platitudes, platitudes to make people feel better in the face of death tells me, more than anything else, that people really fear death. And they want to get away from that fear no matter how. Just tell me there's nothing to be afraid of. But we all know there is a lot to be afraid of, right? I mean, that's the, that's the point. Uh, so we live in this fear. I'll, I'll read a quote from Hamlet. We had to read Hamlet recently uh, in homeschool. And, uh, and this, is, this is Hamlet speaking about death. But, but that dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of, namely those that might occur after death. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Um, I, I was just struck by that quote from Hamlet when we read it. Uh, it, was, it is, it summarizes neatly our fear of death. No one comes back, and we know there might be bad things afterwards. So tell me, how do I, how, how, do I, how am I then saved? As the Jews said uh, to Peter on the day of Pentecost. But he pacifies our fear because uh, between us and God, he makes peace, right? This was the, the, by taking on himself the penalty that was our due. Just as Becky's song uh, made clear. Uh, in so many, so many verses there. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 11 through 18 I'll read. Which also speak to this. Uh, I, I, the phrase is, He drank the bitter cup of wrath for me, right? That was from the song, so true. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There has been made one single offering for sin. And it is sufficient to cover all the sins of the whole world in sufficiency. But in efficacy, it covers the sins of exactly those whom Jesus Christ died for, which are his elect, his church. And so that should give us great comfort, as the song um, that Becky sang uh, gave, gave all of us comfort, I think, in, as we were sitting there listening. So from Calvin, I had to have a Calvin quote in there. Uh, from, from Calvin, he says this, But this we may positively state, that nobody has made any progress in the school of Christ unless he cheerfully looks forward to the day of his death and to the day of the final resurrection. It's, it's a challenge to be there every day, right? Where you're looking forward to death, and, and you see that as truly the gateway home. And not as something as Hamlet said, this thing to be feared, we don't know what goes on behind the doors. Um, but we do know. Uh, because there is one who came back from the dead, right? And, and taught us. So fifthly, and finally, Christ preserves us. And and this is stated uh, rather blandly, I'll, I'll just say, in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That, uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm not casting aspersion on the scriptures. I'm casting aspersion on the translation. That word helps. Is, it just doesn't get the real force of the meaning. Um, that word means to take hold of. It's not just help. In fact, it's not translated that way anywhere else in the New Testament, I don't think. Well, maybe one or two places. It's used a whole bunch of times. Usually it means... Uh, it's used a lot in Acts, where, where people seize Paul and his comrades and drag him out of the city, or drag him in front of the, the judge, or whatever. It's used of laying hold of someone and not letting go. That's what that word, little word help means. Uh, I think some translations actually do say, take, take hold of. Well, I'm, I'm not sure which ones, but... Uh, But I know the ESV just says help, and some others do too. So the idea here is that he comes, he grasps you, the zombie, (laughs) regenerates you to life, and then keeps you in his grasp as he leads you home to heaven. There is no time at which you are out of his grasp. He takes hold of the sons and daughters of Abraham, and that's all of us who by faith have taken hold of him. That faith, he put there. So it's, it's not like we contributed and now he'll, he'll hold on as long as we keep maintaining our contribution. No, he's taken hold of us. He will not let us go. He preserves us. And that is, that's what was originally intended um, when, uh, you know, you've heard the, the term tulip, <laughs> right? The the five points of Calvinism that were written in response to... to uh, you know, other false teaching, etc. The fifth point was preservation of the saints. A lot, uh, a lot of times we call it perseverance of the saints, and and they we do persevere. We persevere in faith because He preserves us. It's the same as when we came to Him in the first place. We came to Him in faith because He implanted faith into us, because He regenerated our heart. We naturally came to Him. And it's not until we're regenerated that we come to him. So preserves us. So he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory, verse 10, in this procession of former zombies, (laughs) now fully human once more, infallibly leading us to heaven. It it reminds me, though I I don't know if I want to strain the, the, the technical exegesis here, but it reminds me, of Ephesians 4.8, when uh, Paul says he ascended on high and he led, host, uh, uh, he led a host of captives. So, uh, by the way, also, in this spectacle, um, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. So, not only has he taken hold of us, he's grasped us, we are regenerated, we are no longer zombies, we are in his procession, he's leading us heavenward, but he's also made uh, put them to open shame that is the devil. In in the old times, the generals when they won a victory, they would put to shame a, a lot like, you know, the putting out of the eyes with Samson, remember the they put his eyes out and they and they put him on spectacle somehow. A lot of times that was in a parade. Through town, probably he got paraded through town before he got to the, to the temple, that is Samson. Um, and so in the same way Jesus Christ is, has made a spectacle of the devil and his minions. so they are also being led whether they which they don't like against their will obviously, to a final judgment um, in chains that are unbreakable. So what I'd like to leave us with, um, so l- let me just wrap up the, the five things. So he partook in our nature. He paralyzed the devil. He plundered us from the devil. He pacifies our fear. And, um, and he's taken hold of us. He's, uh, what was that last P? Preserves us, sorry, thank you. Got ran away with my, myself there. So what I'd leave, like to leave us with this is a simple application. So this Christmas season, um, as you're reflecting on just how deep God's love is for you, for you personally, you know maybe you're sad, maybe you're discouraged, maybe you're uh, tempted sorely. Uh, there are there are trials. Um, maybe you're just plain tired. But but keep reflecting on this love, this enormous love, that compelled. The second person of the Trinity who was just fine without us, didn't need us. He, he, he had glory that he had with the Father from the beginning. And he, we do not add to his glory. We cannot subtract from his glory. In that infinite glory, that infinite majesty, infinite wisdom, holiness, completely separate, he chose in love... To take upon himself this human nature, which now is marred completely by zombies, and just so that he could disarm arguably the most powerful created being in the universe, that is the devil, arguably, I don't know if he is. He's one of the top ones, I guess, right? Um, So that he could disarm the devil, render powerless death itself, and draw us, preserve us, take hold of us all the way to heaven. So regardless of the trials, regardless of, of the discouragements of life, reflect on that this Christmas season. Um, that this is, that's the Christmas story of how Jesus, you know, we get kind of caught up in the baby born in a manger. And, and there's a lot of kind of sentimentality there. Um, but this is about the God of the universe, the, the one who holds the universe together. More power you can't possibly think of, um, uniting himself to us just so that he could die for us and bring us to heaven. So that's um, that's a Christmas gift gift. Um, Maybe it's the only Christmas gift commensurate with the greatness of our God, right? I mean, you, if, you, if you feel how great God is, you would expect a gift that great. Um, I guess so, yeah. And if, if today you're here and you, you haven't put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ yet, you know that all of these promises are for those who are in Christ. And they're only for those who are in Christ but the offer to be in Christ is for everyone. So why would you stay apart from him is, is the question.